Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, study.com is looking for a UX designer. This position is located in Mountain View, California. For just $99, we will feature your job listing on our job board for 30 days and we'll help spread the word about it to our diverse international audience of listeners. We also offer an annual job board subscription for companies and organizations. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on this listing. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, I want to take some time out and thank our accessibility sponsor for this episode, Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. On the weekend of October 8th through the 10th, join the Harvard Graduate School of Design virtually for the Black in Design 2021 conference. This year's theme, Black Matter, is a celebration of black space and creativity from the magical to the mundane. Their speakers, performers, and panelists will bring nuance to the trope of black excellence and acknowledge the urgent political, spatial, and ecological crises facing black communities across the diaspora. You don't want to miss out on this weekend of learning, community, and connection. Visit them online at blackmatter.tv to learn more and to be a part of the event. Support for Revision Path also comes from Adobe Max. Adobe Max is the annual global creativity conference, and it's going online this year, October 26th through the 28th. This is sure to be a creative experience like no other. Plus, it's all free. Yep, 100% free. With over 25 hours of keynotes, luminary speakers, breakout sessions, workshops, musical performances, and even a few celebrity appearances, it's going to be one-stop shopping for your inspiration, goals, and creative tune-ups. Did I mention it's free? Explore over 300 sessions across 11 tracks, hear from amazing speakers, and learn new creative skills, all totally free and online this October. To register, head to max.adobe.com. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Kenny Thacker, founder and chief creative officer of 100 Roses from Concrete. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hey, so I'm Kenny Thacker, um, chief diversity creative at Kenny Thacker, and also the founder of 100 Rows of Concrete, the premier network for people of color in advertising, marketing, media, and public relations. What I do during the day, and I can't say during the night, but during the day and during the day, I work with advertising agencies, big and small, to kind of help them build out their diversity and inclusion platforms and partnerships and programs and just overall policies and practices as well. I feel like that's super, super important. That's where my passion has been for like the last 10 years, I would say, um, being in advertising, even though I've been in advertising for 15 years. Them on the 100 Roses side, as the founder and chief creative officer, I run an organization of about 100 maybe 130 people plus from around the country. And it's basically a professional development kind of network for people of color and women throughout those industries. And we basically, we stand on the principles of connect, collaborating and growing together, because that's something that I've kind of learned throughout my journeys is something that's so 
very, very important to have as talented, creative people, whether it's strategy people, project management people, whatever the role is within advertising. I think it's so very, very important to have a community where you can do those three things, connect, collaborate, and grow. So as Andre 3000 would say, you know, creating an, a community for opportunity. That's what I've been doing um, with 100 Roses from Concrete. So yeah, that's what I do. How has this year been going for you so far? Man, this year has been a whirlwind. I would say the last two years have been a whirlwind, but like the whirlwind just continues to happen. So despite our country and society kind of being on a fire, whether it's from the police stuff or the government stuff or the health stuff, like I've been kind of been like the phoenix that's been rising or better yet, like the rose that grew from concrete. So it's been good. Needless to say, like there's been a lot of opportunity, a lot of meeting, a lot of great people, a lot of partnering with great people and things of that nature. So like, as you know, I kind of look at the world outside of my window, kind of being on flames inside. We've been lucky, my family and I have been lucky to be extremely safe and not gotten sick and anything like that. So I'm doing okay. They're doing okay. So, but as career wise, it's definitely been one for the history books, needless to say, as someone who, oh, and I'll probably talk about this a little later, but as someone who was always in the room where it happened, but never had a seat at the table, I've definitely gained my seat at the table by creating my own opportunities over the last going on two years. Well, I certainly know what that feels like, (laughs) being able to kind of make your own way from something that you've created. How have things like changed for you since the start of last year? How they've changed is, I guess, by kind of creating my own, well, I guess I've always had a brand, but by having the opportunity to really let my brand just do what it's going to do without any restrictions or, or without having my hand slapped, needless to say, has been absolutely great. It has been absolutely great because I get to choose like who I want to work with and who I don't want to work with and basically kind of dictate my own path. It's something that I may have thought of like maybe when I first got out of school, like, yeah, one day, one day I'm going to start my own company. But as of last year, I was even more thrown into the wild and I was like, yeah, it's just time to pull that plug and really just let's start my own thing. So I have to say that I've been extremely blessed that, you know, a lot of the people that I work with are people that I used to work with, but at a different place, but um, being able to kind of see them in positions of power and then seeing me doing the work that I'm doing and then them supporting me and the work that I'm doing to also make their agencies better. Like mm-hmm. it's been an absolute blessing. So, I mean, there's too many names to shout out because it would take more than the hour and a half of this podcast, but yeah, just shout out to all my people. Y'all know who y'all are. They've definitely been able to look out because in full transparency, when COVID hit, I got let go from where I was working, Mm -hmm. right? Because I I was a consultant and I got let go. And for about a week or so, like, I was like, what am I going to do? I mean, I'm used to kind of like always, ever since like high school, like always used to having a job. So I'd never really been let go before. So when that happened, like it really hit me in a different way psychologically. But then it was like, maybe this is the boost that I need to really just say, Kenny, start your own thing. So that's exactly what I did. And I remember even like after I kind of got out of my funk, I remember tweeting and even I think maybe in my Instagram stories, I just put like free agent. And after that happened, my inbox started blowing up. So that's when I knew I was like, yep, it's time to really all these great ideas that I had and things that I wanted to do within the space of DNI. Like I was like, this is the time to do it and things of that nature, just due to the fact that the industry had kind of renewed its interest in it, even though, you know, I've been doing this stuff for like 10 years, but being able to do it on my own rather than under the auspices of a huge company just makes it easier because I'm able to get things done in three months that I couldn't get done in, in like 10 years or eight yeah. years. Or so. Yeah. so like being able to have these like very direct, honest conversations with these CEOs and different leadership people within the companies that I work with is great because before, like I would have to wait weeks to get on somebody's calendar. Now when it's like, oh, Kenny needs to talk to the CEO, it's not even a matter of me going through an assistant. It's just like me hitting up whoever my friend is, who's the CEO or the head of talent, like, hey, I got to talk to you about this. We should do this. And they're like, of course. So it's just so much better and so much fun, but also impactful in a way that I want things to kind of stay. I want 
to keep the heat on in regards to this conversation because so many times like you know it'll get hot and then it'll go cold right mm-hmm. so like my job is to keep the heat on as much as i possibly can with the companies that i work with but also just in the work with the roses as well as making sure that you know our talent kind of knows like what they're getting into by walking into this industry where a lot of the faces don't really look like theirs yeah, you kind of have to keep that momentum going. I mean, it's especially, I think, last year when, you know, sort of as you alluded to, so many companies and organizations and stuff really started to look at what they were doing around showcasing black voices and black talent. Unfortunately, this happened in the shadow of the, the murder of George Floyd, but companies started yeah. to sort of come to and say, oh, well, there's more that we need to do for our workforces, you know, for our black workforces in particular, but but yeah, you have to keep that momentum going because I think it's probably most working black professionals know whenever these kinds of things spark up, they can very easily fade away. And so you kind of have to keep, for lack of a better term, you kind of have to keep your foot on their neck to, yeah. <laughs> to make sure that things will still happen, to make sure that the pledges, <laughs> to, to make sure that the pledges that they have put forth will actually bear fruit and not just be a good PR opportunity. And to borrow a word from you, I just don't want them to be pledges. I want this to be practice. I want this to be policy. Because anybody can pledge $5,000 to the NAACP or to whatever. But like that's a one-time thing, and you're not really being held to the fire. Mm-hmm. Because it's like, oh, well, we did that. And we can say, oh, in 2021, like we gave $5,000 to the NAACP or United Negro College Fund or whatever you want to call it, right? But what about in the next year? Just because you donated a certain dollar amount doesn't make the problem go away. Yeah. A lot of these bigger companies will right. do that. They'll just sort of write a check and think oh, that yeah. will solve everything. <laughs> I mean, last year, probably last July. So just a little bit over a year ago. So last July, I wrote an article for the drum um, or an op-ed better yet for the drum. And I said, advertising, you're late mm-hmm. because the way I was seeing different brands and huge agencies respond to the George Floyd murder. Let's call it what it is. I was just like, you're late, bro. Like police have been killing black people for hundreds of years. Yeah. And not even the one time that it's caught on television, but the one time that it kind of blew everything up, then, oh, we care so much about black lives, right? But no one was really saying that when our babies were being murdered, right? When Trayvon Martin and and Michael Brown, like no one was raising arms saying, oh my God, this is horrible. It took for a guy that's literally like, I think George Floyd, if he was still alive, would be like a few years older than me for them to care. But when our babies were getting murdered, nobody gave, excuse my language, but nobody gave a, you know what, right? Mm -hmm. So to me, during that period and seeing all these really big, like chest beating moments for different agencies, I was like, wow. So now you care and now you're going to allocate millions of dollars towards diversity. But in my days coming up, I had to beg for money for my budget to do the projects that I was doing. Like literally, and I'm talking about like not millions, I'm talking about like a little bit of thousands of dollars for my projects. Like beg, literally like, please, I need this. Like walking up to leadership's face and be like, hey, why was my budget cut and why didn't nobody tell me? Those were the things that I had to do back when I was doing it on the agency side. But after the murder of someone that looks like me, it could have been my cousin, my brother, my neighbor, whatever. All of a sudden, we've got millions. We've got millions also in the middle of a pandemic. I'm sorry, I don't understand that math. Because mm-hmm. I don't understand that. Those agencies had millions of dollars in the middle of a pandemic while also laying off people at the same time. That's why when I was when, it, when mm. in a lot of interviews that I was in last year, people were like, how do you think this is going to go and everything like that? I was like, talk to me in five years. Yeah. Because by next year, ain't nothing going to be different. Ain't nothing going to be different. Yes. Has the great I call it the black gold kind of situation right now where brothers and sisters are finally like getting the opportunities that they deserve. Yeah, it's great right now. Or as another friend of mine calls it, the great black mining or the great resignation of talent of color because now they're actually going to places that are giving them a proper bag, right? So like, yeah, that's what we're in right now. But like, do I believe that this is going to be something that's going to last long? I just don't know. I just don't know. Because what happens after everyone gets these jobs and things of that nature, but then like 
as we said earlier, you know, the foot kind of comes off the gas because these agents are like, oh, well, you know, we kind of gotten close to our goals. And now we do have like a brother or a sister or two in leadership, but it's still not like 50% BIPOC, 50% white people in leadership. That's not going to happen until I'm dead in the grave, to be totally honest with you. So it's just like when people ask me, like, do you think like this is going to change something? I was like, I hope it changes something. But from talking to OGs like Tom Burrell, he says, you know, this happens every 10 to 20 years. Something happens and then everyone cares. And then after a while, it kind of just like dies down. And I would say even now, as we're having this conversation, the wind behind the diversity and inclusion's backs, the way it was like last summer, it's a softer wind right now. It's not as hard as it was like pushing, pushing our boats and whatever it is up the stream. No, 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 no. The wind is a whole lot lighter now. It's a whole lot lighter now because they build some of these roles and things of that nature. And now every time I hear about a big agency doing something, it's like, oh, well, we're planning this and we're planning that. But I never really see anything like come to fruition. They're like, oh, wow, I'm impressed. Because all I ever hear is dollar amounts. I don't hear about practices, policies, partnerships, and programs that are actually going to really shift the needle. I don't see that. I just hear talking. So, yeah, like I said, you put a quarter in me, bro. Like, you got to wait till the song goes out. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of these programs and, and opportunities and such, I mean, 100 Roses from Concrete kind of grew out of this this environment last year. Is that right? Like, you founded it last year, and one of the things that you have going on in the program is something that's called the Growth Initiative. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. So, so 100 Roses, I actually founded in 2019. Okay. So back when diversity wasn't cool, like <laughs> that's when I founded it, right? So I founded it in 2019, but we kind of didn't have our big bang until COVID hit. It was crazy. So like at the beginning, March last year, Adweek, shout out to Adweek. I'll shout out to Adweek all day. Adweek wrote an article about 100 rows from concrete. And immediately, like our membership tripled in like two weeks. But then by the second week of March, here comes a lockdown. So here comes the lockdown. We were the organization was only running for probably about six months or so, and then everything is locked down. Nobody can go nowhere, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the many thoughts that I had in regards to going on onto a virtual platform for Hundred Roses because we used to actually like meet in person was that I have been working with young people trying to get into the industry for the, like the last 10 years, like black and brown, white, whatever. It doesn't matter what you are. As long as you want to be in this industry, you know, I would mentor you, talk to you, things of that nature. So immediately I thought about young people's internships for the summer of 2020 and how I was hearing right before I got let go from the agency where I was that, oh, you know, we're killing the summer internships, layoffs are coming, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, well, damn. I was like, well, that's not fair. Because when you think about the summer internship, that's kind of that, that experience in your career, especially like if you're still in college, like that's that experience that either makes or breaks you, right? You either know that, oh, this is for me or no, it's not. So thinking about how many young people were going to lose that opportunity last summer, immediately I was like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to let this happen. I'm not going to let this happen. So immediately I brought together my team from Hunter Roses and I was like, look, I was like, this is happening. This is about to start happening like any day now. And it did. And I was like, I want to create a program that's going to be virtual and it's going to be for multicultural college kids from around the country, but it's going to have them actually doing real work in real time virtually. And I was like, look, I know it's a tall ask. If y'all don't want to do it, cool, but I'm going to do it because I was already doing programs like this back at two agencies before I got let go. So I was already, I already knew how to do this, but I used to do it in person. So I was like, look, this is what I want to do. And I was like, I want to call it growth. And they were like, cool. I was like, I want to call it the growth initiative, obviously, because you know I'm a Marvel fan. And then I had given the word growth to my creative team at 100 Rows of Concrete. I was like, somebody, you know, come up with an acronym. And everything they sent me back was... It wasn't trash. I just didn't like it. And they were having a hard time with it. And, and they weren't having a hard time with it. And I was like, okay, I was like, give me about an hour. And then I came back to them. I was like, look, this is what I want it to be. Giving real opportunity with talent and heart. 
And that's what growth stands for. And that's literally like, it should be the name of my autobiography because that's all I've been trying to do my entire career is give real opportunity with talent and heart. I'm not trying to, you know, build advertising or creative robots here. No, I'm not trying to do that. (laughs) We give out awards, especially this year in particular, we gave out four financial awards. Actually, we gave out eight financial awards at the end of this summer. And we call them the Life After Growth Awards. The four awards, for each award, we give out two of them. So each award starts with an H. So it's we give an award for hustle. We give an award for being human. We give an award for being humble. And we also give an award for being human. And like that's what we're looking for when we're working with these young people. And we see it come out of them throughout the program as they make work for nonprofit clients across the country. I mean, hell, bro. Like this year, the Growth Initiative was international. And this is only our second year. So by keeping our foot on the gas and giving real opportunity with talent and heart, like we're able to actually see the change happen in real time and then also work with agency partners that understand the value that this type of talent brings to the table at the end of the day. So shout out to our West, shout out to Digo, shout out to Adobe, shout out to Sanyos for being like really, really great partners and realizing the value and 21 grams slash real chemistry, shout out to them too, for like really pulling up and saying, yeah, we believe in what you're doing and we definitely want to bring these young people in to make our agencies better at the end of the day. So, I mean, and that's just this year. Like last year, we had absolutely no partners. The only partner we had was Advertising Club of New York, who we're still partnering with. But Advertising Club of New York helped get us more students to be in the program. So it's not like, you know, like they were giving us internships or full-time jobs or whatever the case may be. But shout out to Advertising Club of New York because they saw what we were doing and they approached us and we were like, hey, you know, the more the merrier, let's do it. Also, shout out to Save the Internships and why from last year that um, partnered with us as well, because they saw what we were doing. They saw that we were grassroots. We're not about trying to, I don't even know what, what, what we were trying to do last year, but somehow we were like literally building the plane when we were flying it. But it worked out because most of the fellows from last year, a majority of them, especially that were career ready, already have jobs within the industry. And now, even as I speak to you today, six of my fellows that just graduated back in the middle of August already have job opportunities. If they're not full-time job opportunities, they're internships for the fall already. Nice. So we're, when I tell you that I'm keeping my foot on the gas, I'm keeping my foot on the gas. And I'm going fast as possible. <laughs> hmm. And now one of the other kind of opportunities that that has arose and it's also part of why you know you're you're on the show right now is that you're going to be speaking mm-hmm. at uh, adobe max this year can you give yeah, like man. a little sneak peek about what your talk's going to be about yeah oh, man so like adobe max is kind of like you know the cherry on the cake this year in regard you, you asked me how my year was going and i was like yo it's been super wild and everything like that when i got the email to participate in adobe max i was like what <laughs> I was like, you sure you got the right person? You know, because <laughs> Adobe has been extremely generous to um, Hunter Rose from Concrete, and I'm beyond appreciative to that for everyone at Adobe that were able to hook us up with the technology resources for the young people in the growth initiative. So, like, shout out to Harvey, shout out to Meg, shout out to everybody at Adobe that was doing it. But my talk at the Adobe Max conference will be actually me and I'll be hosted by my friend Meg, who's just awesome. We were like instant friends. Meg and I are basically going to be talking about how to like level the playing field in the creative industries, right? Like, how do you do that? So throughout our conversation, I mean, we, we don't have as much time as you and I do on this podcast. Like Meg and I are going to be talking about the four things that I feel are most important to leveling this playing field. So we're going to get into access We're going to get into opportunity. We're going to get into experience and exposure because those four things right there are what talent of color needs, just talent, period, kind of needs in order to really figure out ways to really level this playing field and making it fair for everyone. But I'm not only going to talk about the first part, but it all starts, Maurice, with access. It all starts with access. If you want to understand why there's such a disparity between uh, people of color and our white brothers and sisters, 
it all starts with access. It's the allocation of resources, right? So when you think about the huge gap between financial resources, educational resources, housing resources, all those things, it starts with access. So I'm going to talk about that and then I'm going to kind of go down this like this like kind of like ski slope of talking about the, the three other things as well and how they're all actually interconnected mm-hmm. and how if we view our diversity problems through that lens, we can actually get to, I'm not going to say there's a definitive answer because the answer is going to be different for everybody, but at least to a solution, right? And to a solution that we can continue to grow and build and evolve over time. And that's where that access, opportunity, experience, and exposure all are very, very important. Now, I've done Revision Path for, what, eight and a half? Oh my God, eight and a half years now. And I've had a number of conversations just around diversity in advertising, diversity in, in design, diversity in tech, et cetera. And like these conversations, aside from them kind of running in tandem with each other for years, these have also been kind of perennial conversations. Like if I were even to just pinpoint it for design, this is a conversation that has go- been going on at least since the eighties, for example. So you got these different industries, but they have the same goals as it relates to diversity and inclusion, diversifying the workforce, mm-hmm. opportunities, things of that nature. Yeah. Like a lot of what you're mentioning to me sounds very similar to what I've heard from AIGA and what they've tried to accomplish through like their working groups mm-hmm. and symposiums in the 90s and stuff like that. From your mm-hmm. perspective, what do you think it would look like if these different initiatives work together like say what you're doing with 100 roses works with mm-hmm. i don't know I'm, I'm just kind of pulling stuff out of my head like say diversity and design or design mm-hmm. to divest or like other types of things like what yeah. what do you think it would yeah. look like if and like you know these the groups from different industries yeah. yeah like if they work together if they work together that's how the foot stays on the gas because then it doesn't become oh we only talk about this during this time of year right through 100 Roses, I have this thing called that I kind of just created not too long ago, but I guess it's always been in the back of my mind when I think about me mentoring and counseling. I have this thing called a cadence of care, right? And when you create a cadence of care, that's how you know that there's certain times when you have to kind of discuss this. And then the conversation does not grow stale and it doesn't grow old because we find new ways to kind of make it, to keep it relevant at all times. So if we were, if we were to bring like all these different like resources and movements and things like that together into like some type of Voltronish type of being, then every single part, whether it's the legs, whether it's the arms, whether it's the legs, whether it's the chest, like we would know that we have to keep moving, right? Because Voltron don't do jack if it's just standing still. So it has to keep moving. So by kind of bringing like, because I know, you know, people that run their own entities, a lot of good friends of mine that run their own different kind of entities. I got the One School, we got Mark's Grand Project, we got the One Club, all these other different things. But we all kind of run like separately, but we're actually all going in the same direction is that we're just all kind of in different lanes. So it's a matter of that knowing we all have the same destination, but I don't even look at it as a destination because like, I feel like we need to keep just going. Like it needs to keep going, but that's the way I would probably have to answer that question is that if we were to build something like that, we will all know that we have to hold each other responsible in order to keep that blood flowing and keep our foot on the gas to kind of keep it going at all times. Because the moment like we stall is the moment things will go back to the way they used to be. Mm. So like, I mean, you said this conversation in design is going back to the eighties. The conversation about diversity and advertising goes back to the sixties goes back to the 60s. An individual that I have to always shout out during all my like interviews is that, you know, it goes back to the late, great Bill Sharp. He was the first group copy supervisor at JWT where I used to work like two years ago. Mm-hmm. And he passed away sadly in 2013, but he's technically like considered the godfather of diversity in advertising because he was talking about it back in like the 60s. Back in the 60s, he was talking about it. And once I learned about Bill's work and what Bill did with the basic advertising course, which is similar to like the Marcus Grant project or the growth initiative or the one school, like once I found out about his work, I was like, 
there's no way I can work in at the same agency as this great black man used to work, not the same office, but the same agency where he used to work and me not give two dams about this topic and not put my days and nights and weekends, whatever into this work. So once I was properly informed about Bill and Bill's not taught about in ad school. So a lot of times you bring up the word Bill Sharp, people are like, who? But he even wrote a book back in the 60s that I assigned to my growth initiative fellows called How to Get a Job in the Advertising Business and Be Black Anyway. I may have got a word or two wrong, but it's an amazing book. And it's only like 19 pages. But even if you read that book today, it sounds like Bill is talking to you right now. Mm -hmm. That's how important it is. So, yeah, man. Yeah, Bill keeps me inspired. And I mean, last year, I was honored enough to receive um, his award for the future of advertising. I keep it right here above my desk, um, lit up all the time. But yeah, Bill is the man and I'm very close to his family and everything like that. And like, I keep them informed of everything that I'm doing. And they always be like, yo, Bill would be proud if he was still around. So like having that cosign from the Sharp family is something that keeps me going. But also like, you know, if there's opportunities to pull whether it's agencies or small movements like myself with me, like that's what I'm going to do. But that's what it's going to take. Like the Voltron cannot stand still because if it does, like we're going to lose time and we're going to lose space to gain that leverage within the industry. Yeah. And I have to say, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure like in terms of those conversations that you're mentioning that have taken place since the sixties, that's kind of where I think the genesis of it for design has also come from too. I'd be remiss if I didn't mm-hmm. mention that. I feel like, Cheryl Miller and many other luminaries of this year mm-hmm. will probably get at me on that. But certainly I think these conversations have originated from a similar place because of course, advertising was really well known back then. And like, even if you think about mm-hmm. design, as we look at it now, it grew out of that creative field. So that kind of makes sense there. Switching gears. Cause I know we spent a lot of time talking about what you're doing now with hundred roses, your Adobe max talk. Mm-hmm. I see from looking at your Instagram that you're a, a huge Marvel fan so I want to yeah, get <laughs> the, the Kenny Thacker origin story. Talk to me about where you All grew right. up. Yeah, man. So um, I grew up in Washington, D.C. and Maryland, kind of like the DMV area, you know, DMV, Washington, you know, Maryland, D.C., Virginia. That's where I grew up. That's where I kind of before um, moving to New York senior year of high school, even though I still finished my senior year of high school, my mother-in-law moved to New York. So like I finished high school and then kind of, when college came, when Lincoln University came into the play, I was already living in New York. So I've been living in New York literally now more than half of my life, to be totally honest with you. So that's kind of like where I grew up, you know, so days and nights in, D- in the DMV and then, you know, like early adult years, you know, just been here in New York um, ever since. So, yeah, that's kind of like my origin story in regards to just like getting into the industry. I always say my origin story is nothing like fabulous. Like I don't have like these great stories to be like, oh, well, you know, I was in MAPE or I was in Marcus Graham Project or I was in the growth initiative or whatever the case may be. Like that's not how I got into advertising. I would say my first couple years after college, I worked in, I guess, the hospitality industry. So like conference centers and hotels and things of that nature, doing a lot of technology work and things of that nature. So like sound systems, projectors, lighting, audio, things of that nature. So like a audio visual event technology, whatever you want to call it. But that's actually what landed me into advertising as a freelancer doing that work. I landed into Ogilvy. And the first day I was in Ogilvy, I didn't even know what Ogilvy really was until I was like looking at the walls of the old Ogilvy office and seeing like these different like ads, like the Superman American Express ads and things of that nature. And I was like, do they make commercials here? And sure enough, they did. And Spent a little bit of time at Ogilvy, but then while I was at Ogilvy, I got a call from J- at least the agency formerly known as JWT at the time, asked me if I was interested in a job. And I was like, I don't even know what JWT is. So I asked one of the people at Ogilvy, I was like, hey, this place called JWT. They're like, oh, it's just like here, except they're a little bit older. I was like, oh, cool. Um, went to JWT on like a lunch break or whatever, knocked out that interview, went for another interview, and I had the job. And I spent 13 years at JWT. and I would say 2011 is when I actually started like the the DNI work that I've been doing, and then I kind of left there on a high note. 
doing the DNI work, but still doing the technical work as well. So the technical work was always like the stuff that paid the bills, but the DNI work was something that I just did because I was passionate about it. So luckily I had a few resources that kind of let me do the DNI work. And even when I was at JWT in particular, I created a program called the Young Commodores, which is very similar to the Growth Initiative, except it was in person. It was definitely not over 50 young people from around the country. It was actually the first high school college mashup of multicultural students that learned about the business and worked on real life clients. So like I created the Young Commodores and ran that for about three years. And then at the end of those three years is when I decided to um, leave JWT. And that's when I left it for PR for a little bit. And then after PR, that's when I kind of created my own company. Kenny Thacker, but also before that departure from JWT is when I created Hunter Rose from Concrete. So nothing too fabulous, but more just like kind of falling into opportunities per se, but also making the most out of those opportunities when I had them. Uh huh. Let's bring it back because you you kind of <laughs> you you definitely put the foot on the gas there in regards to the, the origin story. But let's bring it back mm-hmm. to those DMV years now. I heard that your mom yeah. was a copywriter, so your mom was kind of in the in the ad industry as well. Yeah. Is that is that where you got your spark for this kind of work? Well, my mom was a copywriter like very, 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 very briefly. And I didn't realize that she was a copywriter until I was at JWT. Because I was like, is that what mom was doing? Because like I remember like going with her to like the studio and someone was like reading like the words that she wrote. So I didn't really understand it until I was actually in the advertising industry to kind of understand. But my mom has lived like a million lives, um, needless to say. And copywriter was like one of those. I mean, she's been a teacher. I mean, she still is a teacher. But like as far as like educating people, that's been like, I would say, a really big bulk of her career. But she did do a brief stint as a copywriter. What agency? I have no clue because I was like a little kid. I don't even think she remembers, (laughs) but yeah, she had a brief stint. And then when I was actually in ad school, shout out to the ad house. I was like, I think this is what mom used to do back when I was like, barely, I could barely remember needless to say, but yeah. So the creative like arts per se has always been in me somewhat like don't get it messed up. I can't draw to save my life. So let's not even go there. Um, so any artists out there, graph GDs, as I call them, you know, respect to y'all. I can't draw to save my life, but, you know, I can write a line or two, needless to say. And I know good copy, you know, when I see it. So like on the writing side, that's something that I've, I've always done. I've always written stories or back in the high school days in the DMV. I used to write a couple of raps, <laughs> did a couple of rap showcases, okay. things of that nature. But um, unfortunately, during those days in the 90s, um, there was two great artists that came on the scene that kind of made me feel like, you know what, you can't do this. And one goes by the name of the late, great Christopher Wallace and the other Tupac Shakur. I was like, oh, OK, these dudes are really good at this. I'm not that great. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I was like, yeah, I'm gonna go to college. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to make it as a rapper. So, and, and speaking yeah. of college, what made you decide to go to Lincoln? Because you're in the DMV. I mean, um, there's there's Howard, there's other HBCUs. Not yeah. saying that going to an HBCU yeah. was, was, I don't know if that was the goal or not, but what made you decide to go to Lincoln? What made me go to Lincoln was that my high school was in the burbs of Maryland, right? So it was in this suburb called Germantown, Maryland. I would say shout out to Germantown, but I don't know why I live there anymore. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but my high school was like in the burbs. So like Germantown was maybe 30 minutes outside of DC. So my high school was pretty diverse, but I would say it was still like majority white. It was probably about 30% kids of color, 70% white kids. So during that time in particular in going to high school, it wasn't like being in DC where my elementary school was like all just black and brown kids pretty much all day, every day. But um, due to the fact that, you know, I spent this time at this very kind of mixed high school per se, I knew that I needed like four years of unadulterated blackness. Mm-hmm. To say. <laughs> so I only applied to actually HBCUs. I didn't apply to any PWCs at all because that's just what I wanted to do. But also shout out to one of my high school teachers, actually two of my high school teachers, Miss Smith and Miss Wilder was from ninth grade to 10th grade. No, from ninth grade to 12th grade, we always had field trips 
two historically black colleges okay. and maybe one here or there like once in a blue moon like we go to william and mary but we always went to hampton we actually never we were supposed to go to lincoln once but we never did but we did stop by temple and i always there were always like different organizations would sponsor like these black college tours. So like I was able to visit Morehouse and Morris Brown. And I mean, I, obviously I couldn't go to Spelman, but like North Carolina A&T, I think I, I went there like twice mm-hmm. when I was in high school. So those are the only kind of schools that I actually visited when I was in high school. And I just knew that this was the kind of atmosphere that I would thrive in. Now, when it came to Lincoln in particular, two friends of mine from high school actually went to Lincoln and they just raved about it. They're like, oh my God, it's the sh-. And I was like, okay, cool. So I applied, actually got in. And when I went there for like an open house, I guess per se, even though I was already accepted, something about just the campus made me feel, because Lincoln is not a big school. So Lincoln is far, the si- is far from the size of, of Howard or even Hampton. So it's a really, really small school. But Something about like the feel of the yard just made me feel like by the time I leave here, everybody's going to know my name. Mm. And that's exactly what I did in four years. (laughs) I majored. I did not major in business. I did not major in advertising. I majored in education because I thought I wanted to be a teacher. But there was just something about the experience from Lincoln. And, And people, and I get this question a lot when people ask me about, you know, like, my historically black college experience. And I tell them like, you know what? It was bittersweet. And I was like, you know, there was times when it was super sweet because, you know, I'm around my folks and everything like that. But also there was times when it was extremely bitter. There was times when I didn't want to go back to be totally honest with you. There was times when I definitely did not want to go back. But my mom, you know, always being in my corner, she was like, hey, like you're going back. (laughs) She's like, when you graduate, we graduate. And when she said that alone, that touched my heart. And I was like, wow, this means so much to her that when I graduate, she graduates. And not that to say that my mother doesn't have degrees. Now she has multiple degrees, but just that alone made me like, okay, I'll go back and like finish out. And, you know, I mean, I did it in a straight four years, did, you know, two summers, two summer schools, but, you know, finished it in the exact four years that I was allotted to be there. And, you know, I've made some of my closest friends, there, you know, like my roommates and everything like that. Like I'm still very close to one of my roommates in particular, but still, you know, love to my other roommate as well, but still close to my friends there. And it's just something that can never be taken away from me. But even the rough times, I appreciate those rough times, right? Because like, when you think about how we interact with other races, especially the white race in particular, there's certain things that we kind of expect because it's just systemic. It's just systemic. So that like that systemic hate is just something that the system creates. But when some of those bad times that you have with your own people, it almost feels like it's your family hurting you. So when people ask me about my historically black college experience, I'm like, well, it was great. But it also and this is kind of crazy math, but going to historically black college actually helped me help me deal with white people better because the rough times that I went through at a historically black college will always surpass my roughest day with a white person. Because with a white person, I know it's something that it's systemic. And Mm. that's just the world that we live in. Whereas when your own people do you dirty, it's like, you feel like, we're neighbors. Why you slap my mom? You know, so it's something that even those bad times, I still like embrace them because they gave me such a tougher skin, right? Because when it's your own people, it's not a systemic type of player hating or whatever the case may be. It's just, it's just hate at the end of the day. And that hurts. But when it's, when it's systemic, you kind of know like, oh, well, this is just the system being the system. And there's not much I can really do to change this because this was a system that person was also born into. And that's why they look at me this way. Mm. So yeah, that's my whole HBCU thing. But you know, till I die and you know, Lincoln's the first historically black college. And A lot of the things that I try to do, just whether it's in life or within, you know, my career, is always trying to be the first. So, like, you know, I went to the first historically black college. JWT was actually the first advertising agency, per se. So, like, Bill Sharp, first group copy supervisor. You know, I have one child. I'm an only child. My wife is an only child. Like, so there's a whole lot of ones that kind of follow my origin story. And that's just how I kind of operate. Even when I think about the Young Commodores program, it was the first 
high school college mashup program to develop talent of color and white kids as well in the whole advertising business period. So like, it's just something that I constantly try to do. I just try to, you know, there's a lot of ones along my story. Interesting. And I mean, Lincoln is a, is a very well-known HBCU. Like you said, it's the first uh, HBCU. I mean, Langston Hughes is an alumni. Thurgood Marshall is an alumni. Yeah. I mean, Albert Einstein visited there. Oh, nice. Okay. There's a photo of Albert Einstein at Lincoln, like back in the black and white photo days. <laughs> I don't know when exactly it was. But I mean, even Albert Einstein visited Lincoln University. And it's and, and the campus hasn't moved. It's still exactly where it is. And in southern Chester County, Pennsylvania, right off of Route 1, it's an hour away from Philly. Like, it's still there. And it's even better now because actually they do have an advertising program at that school now. So that's always good to hear of the school growing and things of that nature. I first heard about Lincoln. When did I first hear about Lincoln? I think it was when I was in, in college. I went to Morehouse. And, uh, okay. The, the, oh, nice. Yeah, the summer before I started, there was like the summer program that I was a part of. And our math professor was a math professor from Lincoln, Dr. Shabazz, who unfortunately has passed away, rest mm-hmm. in peace. But that's where I first heard about Lincoln. And he gave us like the history of of Lincoln. And like Dr. Shabazz is like one of the like most well-known black mathematicians in the world. So that's mm-hmm. how I first heard about about the school and everything. As you kind of mentioned, you graduated from Lincoln, you were out there in the world, you were kind of doing this this work in tech, you kind of said for mm-hmm. For yeah, ad agencies yeah, and yeah. stuff like that. And then you started out later at JWT, which is where you spent the bulk of your career. When you look mm-hmm. back at that time, like what are some of the highlights that you remember from that? I mean, the highlights were. Are there highlights? I would imagine so. I'm I mean, just, I'm just. <laughs> I mean, it's all a highlight reel. Um, no, some of it's not. I mean, some of the highlights was being able to executive produce the first documentary I ever executive produced was for Black History Month as a part of like part of the diversity like platforms that we were creating. But being able to executive produce my first documentary, that that was when I was like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Needless to say, it was a great experience. That very first one that I executive produced was actually directed by my man, Pete Chapman. He's moved on and directed a bunch of great stuff for television, for Blackish, for Grownish, for Atypical, Grey's Anatomy. He's just killing it basically right now in the game. But it was a great opportunity to work with him. I won't say those were his early days, but definitely his days getting into the game and things of that nature. But not only did I executive produce that documentary, but I also made that documentary another four times after that. And then I started directing and producing those documentaries after I couldn't afford Pete after the first time because he's too good. Um, but me kind of getting into the production kind of field and and where there was camera work and, and directing at the same time, you know, like kind of being able to do all of that, then create these programs for young people. And I would say two years after starting this kind of work, that's when like the accolades started coming in like slowly but surely, but they were definitely coming in. And it was all just kind of mind blowing for me at the end of the day. So it's been like one experience to the other, but I will say, you know, like creating Young Commodores, creating Hunter Roseman Concrete, creating the Growth Initiative, I would say like those are have kind of been like the steady, just like it never gets old, but mm-hmm. also like ain't no stopping now. But I also feel like I'm only getting started. Even doing this work for 10 years, to be totally honest with you, Maurice, I feel like I'm only getting started. Speaking to that, I'm curious, like, you mentioned all these firsts. You mentioned, you know, mm-hmm. first for your program, things of that mm-hmm. nature. Where does that drive come from? Like, why do you have the ambitions that you have? I mean, I think the ambition comes from my family, right? I mean, one, I'm surrounded by the strongest, smartest women, period, right? So when I think about my wife, when I think about my mom, when I think about my kid, like, they're all just way smarter than me, period. <laughs> <laughs> they're smarter and they're stronger than me. So by being surrounded and, you know, shout out to all my nieces too, but they're all so strong and also very focused that it's like, I got to pull my weight, dog. To be totally mm. I got to pull my weight. So, so when it comes to the things that, you know, I want to do, I'm also thinking about the future for my daughter. Right. So when I say that, you know, I've been doing this work for 10 years, she's only 11 years old. So like literally oh. it was after like a year after her birth that I was like, you know what, 
I just wasn't feeling like I was being challenged. I wasn't being fulfilled. And I didn't even know that I could actually make a difference in this industry. But when she came along, I was like, you know, if there's anything I can do to make sure that maybe the job world is just 5% easier for her than the 100% how hard it was for my wife and myself. And, you know, Lord knows my mom, you know, she's been in the working industry. She's still working and she's about to be 80 years old. But like, there's any way that I can do to just to make it 5% easier for her, then like, that's what I'm going to do. And that's what I have done. So like, even if you kind of scroll back to like some of my older Instagram photos, like you'll see that I brought her on set when she was like three, four years old making spots. I mean, with the growth initiative this summer, when they, when one of the teams was making a commercial for her spot, I brought her with me. So she could see like what we were doing as like a ragtag kind of production crew and things of that nature. So I constantly try to bring her along for the journey as much as I possibly can, whether she's like super interested or not interested, still try to like make her a part of it so she can kind of understand and see how it works. But then also kind of see like, oh, so these young people are 20, 22 years old or whatever the case may be. And they're trying to do this. And my dad is actually helping them. You know what I mean? So like, even when I do back when we were, we could do things in person, like any award that I would receive, I would bring her up on stage with me. So she could be a part of that experience as well. So she's seen me win award from award to magazine. Now she's just numb to it all. So she's like, oh, you're, oh, dad, oh, you're in business insider. Oh, okay. Who cares? But, um, you know, she's kind of gotten numb to it all. And, you know, it's a jab. It's kind of a running joke around my house. Because my wife always, you know, makes fun of me because you think you're famous. And then my kid said, dad, you're like semi-famous. (laughs) that's the kind of the running joke around the house is that i'm not famous i'm kind of semi-famous but you know (laughs) needless to say you know the accolades when they do come through i'm still blown away by any one of them and i'm super grateful you know when they do come because one i don't do it for the accolades in the first place you know i mean i'm doing it here to literally change the culture and doing it for the people that look like me and definitely you know for the ones that are coming behind us at the end of the day because like When I think about my early days and just how, as I said, I think in the beginning of our talk is how I always in the room, but I didn't have a seat at the table, right? Mm -hmm. I was in the rooms with our CEOs and our top leaders, you know, going around the country, helping them with their technology as they were meeting with these multi-billion dollar clients and things of that nature. Like I was there, but I didn't have any power. But now, you know, 15 years later in the advertising business, here I am, you know, you know, doing a podcast with Maurice and about to be on the Adobe Mac stage. And, you know, <laughs> and I can say that, you know, Adobe, you know, with more money than God is one of the partners for my organization that I started myself. You know what I mean? So it's all just like kind of like I can't even call it a dream come true because like I didn't even dream this to be totally honest with you, Maurice. I didn't even dream this. It was just more like being on the grind, doing what I do trying to do it the best way I know how, bringing in the right people, because the Lord knows I can't do it by myself. But that that's all it's been, bro, to be 100% honest with you. That's all it's been. But yeah, I didn't even dream of an Adobe partnership. <laughs> but you know, now thinking back to the days when I didn't have a seat at the table, and even though I was in the room, but now I can be like, yeah, you know, partner with Adobe, you know, multi-billion dollar company. And I did it from my living room, dog. Yeah. <laughs> Mentioning your your daughter, does she want to follow in your footsteps? And she's kind of been shadowing you, it sounds like, for a very long time. She's more into the theatrical arts. So she's she's a little actress, needless to say. And she's done multiple like productions with her, like her theater camp. And she currently attends Harlem School of the Arts. Shout out to Harlem School of the Arts. So she's killing it there right now. But yeah, she more in front of the camera, needless to say. But I mean, she's also a great writer in her own rights. And she writes about things that are important to her, even stuff that in regards to our country and things of that nature. So she definitely has her own opinion about things because sad to say, you know, since 2017, she's had a front row seat to everything that's been going wrong. Right. And I was telling a friend of mine from the UK, I was like, and this is back in 2017. I was telling him, I was like, the worst part about what was then about to happen was that our kids will not be able to unsee this. Yeah. 
That's very like, true. There, there's just no going back to what was. Like we as adults will be forever changed, but our kids even more so. And especially when you even think of just like as of last year being like stuck on on the screen all day and that's their form of school. We didn't have to go through that when we were in school, right? Yeah. So, but like the resilience, I would say, of these young people these days, even all the way down to my daughter's age, the ones that are handling it well, like, yo, like I give them all the respect. I'm like, y'all are way stronger than us because I would have probably quit school. <laughs> sit on the screen all day you know like my attention span just wasn't like that back then hell it's probably not like that now but needless to say like the resilience of these young people and you know shout out to my gifts the growth initiative fellows to pull together campaigns all virtually over these last two years like that alone i tell them i was like y'all are special you don't understand how special you are that you're able to pull together campaigns for these nonprofit organizations and none of you, most of y'all aren't even in the same state. Yeah. Hell, same continent. Shout out to my nephew Sandeep in, in New Delhi. And then, you know, one of my other fellows in, in Singapore, like they were joining like 5 a.m. their time, <laughs> our sessions. You know what I mean? 5 a.m., you know, 12 p.m. their time, literally oceans and oceans away. But they were joining and they got the most out of the experience and, you know, they were doing their thing. It's crazy. Are you where you wanted to be at the stage in your life? Like when you think back to like the early days of what you were working on, is this kind of where you saw yourself ending up? No, I didn't. I thought, you know, I'd constantly be working for like a company like all my life. I mean, I mean, obviously I'm not a millennial, so, you know, I don't bounce around every two to three years where the case may be. I mean, as you see, you know, I spent a long time at JWT. Was I planning on retiring from JWT? No, that was never in the cards for me. I, there was always, I always wanted a way out and I always wanted to find just a way to still actively be involved in the industry, but maybe just not there. But, and I can't honestly say this is where I want to be, right? Because then that's me saying I'm comfortable where I am. And since I'm constantly on the move, it's just like, yeah, this is good. But I feel like there's, I could always do better at the end of the day. So like, I'm not a sedentary type of person when it comes to my career and what I want to do. And especially with like, shout out, you know, Fast and Furious kind of reference, but like with the nitrous boost that my career got, I would say over the last, going on the last two years, actually, I don't ever want to just say I'm happy where I am, right? There's so... One piece of advice I give young people all the time is like, you know, don't chase the checkered flag because there shouldn't be an end to what you want to do. You should constantly be evolving and growing all the time. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like, what kind of work do you want to be doing? I mean, five years, hopefully the roses is on more solid footing. Not that we're not right now, but even on more solid footing more more great partners, things of that nature, bringing, making this a reality, getting these right, give, bringing this black BIPOC talent into these industries that don't really have a lot of them. Kenny Thacker, LLC, definitely, you know, working with agencies on a longer basis, but also being able to like really ignite sustainable and perpetual change within these organizations. So that's where I'd like to see myself if we're having this conversation in three to five years. like That's where I want to see myself. There's basically more growth at the end of the day, giving real opportunity with talent and heart on both ends, whether it's through the agency side or through the work that I do with the young people or the professional development that we do through 100 Roses from Concrete. That's where I want to be like in five years. But even five years from now, I'm still not going to be comfortable where I'm at because I'm going to be like, I know I need to do more. And honestly, who knows what this world is going to look like in five years with the way things are kind of going right now. Oh, so it kind of, I mean, it kind of feels like the smart thing to, to still kind of stick with, with what you're working on. So I mean, sounds good. I hope, I hope to be alive. <laughs> Look, <laughs> floods in one part of the country, fires in another part, as we're recording this, I should mention, but yeah, I, yeah, I totally get what yeah, you're saying. Yeah. You know, like I hope to be alive, but if I am alive, I'm going to tell you this, Maurice, I'm be fucking, excuse my language. Sorry. I'm going to be putting my foot in people's behinds and making sure like these things come to fruition, you know, one way or the other, you know, one way or the other, who's to say, you know, five years from now, maybe I'm working for one of these places. I don't know. But if I am like, it's not going to be 
this soft shoe kind of dancing around the topic of diversity is going to be like, no, there's going to be Timberland boots. <laughs> and we're going to be like, <laughs> you know, town stomping, making this stuff happen at the end of the day. Because the days of, you know, kind of like the soft shoe tap dancing around has got us nowhere, right? Has got us absolutely nowhere. It's got us absolutely nowhere, but it's also made a lot of people extremely wealthy. This is true. So it's a matter of thinking about, okay, Obviously, there's a worry from a certain group of people that, oh, well, th- there's not enough room at the table. That's okay, because you know what? You, me, a bunch of other people, we can go to Home Depot, <laughs> get some plywood, build some chairs, build extensions to that table, and make the table bigger. Because it's not about taking away from anyone. It's about just making more room at the end of the day. Well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work and everything online? So obviously, you know, KennyThacker.com, pretty easy place to find about work with Kenny Thacker LLC. But then also, you know, Hunter Rose from Concrete, this is HunterRoseFromConcrete.com. On Twitter, we're 100RFC. Yeah, 100RFC on Twitter, but 100 Rose and Concrete on Instagram. And yeah, me just the same way on Instagram and Twitter, just K-E-N-I-T-H-A-C-K-E-R on both. Um, no secret cool kind of handles or whatever the case may be. Like mm-hmm. that's the easiest way to kind of find out like what we're doing and what I'm doing and, you know, things coming up and things of that nature. We're working on some new stuff for the growth initiative that will probably launch in January. It's top secret, so I can't really talk about it right now. I am going to say that, you know, with the growth initiative, we have mastered helping young people. So now it's a matter of thinking about how do we help other people through the umbrella of growth and Hunter Rose from Concrete. So that's going to be something that people are going to need to look for. Probably in the next couple of months, we're definitely going to start um, grinding down that idea that I have for the organization to kind of help more people at the end of the day. Because I always tell people, I was like, the one thing, you know, whenever this COVID stuff is done, a couple of things that will still be around is going to be racism, ageism, sexism, xenophobiaism, ableism, and all those other isms are going to outlive COVID whenever yeah. COVID's over. So it's really about not taking our foot off the gas about those things that are important to us, but also those things that are going to make our creativity better, make our pockets better equitably, right? But also make people feel like they belong and feel like they're a part and they can be successful within these organizations where a lot of faces don't look like theirs at the end of the day. So like if there's anything that I can do to teach people how to show up in these challenging spaces where creativity and commerce often meet and humility falls short, that's what I'm going to do. Sounds good, man. Well, Kenny Thacker, I want to thank you so much, so, so much for coming on the show. Thank you for really, I mean, putting yourself out there and stepping out on your own and being a voice in the advertising and creative industries as it relates to pulling together opportunities for really, you know, diverse talent. I mean, it's it's certainly something that throughout the time I've done this show, I've been trying to kind of beat that drum to let companies know. So it's good to talk to somebody <laughs> out there that's that's also really kind of putting his foot on the gas and making sure that this happens so the next generation can really come up and have the opportunities that they need to succeed. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. As one of my professors, Dr. T, actually, (laughs) at Lincoln, used to say, it's been a privilege and a pleasure. Big, big thanks to Kenny Thacker. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Kenny and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our wonderful sponsor, Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, Check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. On the weekend of October 8th through the 10th, join the Harvard Graduate School of Design virtually for the Black in Design 2021 conference. This year's theme, Black Matter, is a celebration of black space and creativity from the magical to the mundane. Their speakers, performers, and panelists will bring nuance to the trope of Black excellence and acknowledge the urgent political, spatial, and ecological crises facing Black communities across the diaspora. 
You don't want to miss out on this weekend of learning, community, and connection. Visit them online at blackmatter.tv to learn more and to be a part of the event. Support for Revision Path also comes from Adobe Max. Adobe Max is the annual global creativity conference and it's going online this year, October 26th through the 28th. This is sure to be a creative experience like no other. Plus, it's all free. Yep, 100% free. With over 25 hours of keynotes, luminary speakers, breakout sessions, workshops, musical performances, and even a few celebrity appearances, it's going to be one-stop shopping for your inspiration, goals, and creative tune-ups. Did I mention it's free? Explore over 300 sessions across 11 tracks, hear from amazing speakers, and learn new creative skills all totally free and online this October. To register, head to max.adobe.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. What did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? Please don't be a stranger. We love, love, love to hear from listeners. So hit us up on Twitter or Instagram. Just search for Revision Path or just look for Revision Path like all one word. And leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Actually, you can leave us one on Apple Podcasts, five stars, of course. And I don't know if I mentioned this before on the show, but we're also on Audible and on Amazon Music. And you can leave reviews there as well. So... Don't think you just have to use Apple Podcasts. You can use those places too. We're everywhere. If you go to revisionpath.com slash subscribe, we're in like two dozen places. There's not a place that you can't find Revision Path if you listen to podcasts. So let everyone that you know know about the show because it really helps us grow and reach more people all around the world. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>